Super Talk Mississippi media production. State Treasurer David McRae has put millions back into the hands of Mississippi citizens, expanding the state's affordable college and career savings program and also returning record amounts of unclaimed money. Check out how Treasurer David McRae's office can help you, your business, or your organization. Treasury.ms.gov. This is Gerard Gibbert, and thank you for listening to Middays here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this hump day. And it got a little cooler outside. The wind was whipping around last night. Some torrential rains moved through the state. I mean, like the entire state. That line. Oh yeah, was rather parallel with the river and the state's boundaries. Now, I don't know if it was just central Mississippi that experienced this, but it was a little weird to watch the sun go down, the front come in, and the mercury tick up a few. Yeah. It was warmer at 7 o'clock last night than it was at noon. Weird. Usually that uh, foretells of severe weather. A lot of energy in it. Yeah. Which was predicted, but thankfully it didn't. Just a whole bunch of rain. Jeez. And wind. And wind, yes. Saw wind gusts in some parts of the Magnolia State up to 60 miles an hour. Jeez. That's a lot. So yesterday we had a rather interesting discussion about the tail wagging the dog, metaphorically speaking, where just it seems like the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many. I believe that is um, contradiction to Mr. Spock's philosophy, right? <laughs> so... In the second chapter of Star Trek, entitled Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Well, I, I'm i with Mr. Spock, where the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and that's not to suggest that everyone doesn't have unalienable rights, which include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, contrary to what the United States Vice President thinks. Oh, and by the way, those rights are endowed to us, conferred to us, by our Creator, not government. Well, so... Just thinking about that list last night, Rhino, we got the chief of police in Minnesota that was strong-armed, essentially, to apologize for displaying a thin blue line flag on Law Enforcement Appreciation Day a couple of weeks ago. We got the young 17-year-old in uh, in the shower at the Y 
who has to witness a male in the shower. It was clearly a male to the 17-year-old there and there, nakedity. However, the person, whatever he, she describes himself as, I'm calling it a he. I saw him. You saw it on the video yesterday. Says they're fully transitioned. I don't think there's any such thing, honestly. So this one person disrupts this why, and the why says, uh, sorry, you just have to get over it. So this one person essentially infringes on, I would say, the rights, certainly the stability of the lives and the experiences of others. So this one person dictates the policy, essentially of the why. We discussed the professor at Vanderbilt yesterday <laughs> who says that math has got to be changed because of its roots in cis-hetero, what is it, cis-heteropatriarchal, that's it. I remembered it, <laughs> whatever the heck that is. What did you describe it as? Normal red-blooded male. <laughs> okay. So this one fool says we got to change math. Now comes the Eminem saga. <laughs> so well, before you get to that, remember the person saying that math is racist also believes that rocks have feelings. <laughs> oh, you looked that up. This professor does. Yes. Oh man, how does one get tenure? at a leading university like that. Academia is very insular. No doubt about it. The most protectionist community in the country. Way more than politics, politicians. Which is saying something. Yeah, that's saying a lot. That's a high bar. So M&M's pulls the spokes candies because people don't want social justice activism when they're freaking eating candy. They just want to eat the candy. Did I miss something there? My my favorite response was Skittles replied and said that their thoughts are with the spokes candies. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh gosh. It's so M and M said, which is of course owned by Mars Wrigley, those two companies came together a few years ago. They announced Monday that they're taking a quote indefinite pause. <laughs> Meaning it could come back. They left that door yeah, open. Yeah, it's starting to smell like the planter's peanut guy from Super Bowl last year or a couple yeah. of years ago, where they're like, we're going away with him, and then they had this <laughs> asinine commercial for the rebirth of him. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm reading the Skittles tweet, and they shared... You saw that, the Eminem official statement, that you have to write two rather lengthy paragraphs about spokes candies tells you how upside down the damn world is right there. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it begins, does the Eminem statement, America, let's talk. <laughs> no, we just want to eat candy. <laughs> Good grief. Oh, gosh. We didn't think this would break the Internet, they went on to say. 
But we get it. Even a candy's shoes can be polarizing because it just needs to be candy. <laughs> oh my gosh. So the sales dipped somewhat after <laughs> they introduced the woke candies, the spokes candies. But it's just another example like what compelled them to do that? A teeny tiny infinitesimal fraction of the country, which I think you've described as butt hurt. <laughs> Exceedingly and nonstop. We cannot, we can't run the place like this. We can't do it. So I got a report to you as well. I'll get to the details later. But something that always frustrates Americans when they vote and they send people to their various elected seats. The U.S. Congress would be such a place. So the House now controlled by the Republicans. Speaker McCarthy, having been elected, has busy making his committee appointments. Okay. So already I'm seeing that there are Republicans who have been appointed to various roles, including, uh, I don't remember the exact name of the committees, but they deal with banking and finance, the various committees that deal with that. And so these folks have promptly decided that diversity, equity, and inclusion has to be a centerpiece of their policymaking of their work in these committees. Wait, I thought we just voted against that garbage. What the hell does that got to do with the banking industry? And what regulation that they consider and laws they consider affecting that industry? And so they've come out already and said, yeah, we, we got to make that a centerpiece. In fact, the individual and I'll pull it up here in a minute, the individual in charge of the committee says there are too many white males running the banking industry. Why does that matter? That shouldn't matter. white male bad. Oh, I got you. Cis, According to the dogma, white male bad. Cis-heteropatriarchal. So they kept this. We wanted this crap gone. I'm pretty sure that that's the widely held view of those who put these people in office. So it's Representative Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina, is the one that said, there are too many white males in the banking industry. And he is uh, head of the Financial House Financial Services Committee. I'm just blown away that they're continuing this garbage. we got to do something. This is crazy. Crazy. I'll get to more of that when we come back. We got Representative Nick Bain in the Element Well Studios at 1105 and Senator Nicole Akins Boyd at 1205. We'll get an update from the legislature, from the representative and the senator. Stay with us. We're in the Element Well Studios on middays. That keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
Later in the pub down in Old Soho Where you drink champagne and it tastes like Coca-Cola C-O-L-A Cola She walked up to me and she asked me to dance I asked her her name and in a dark brown voice she said hello Bumping us into this segment here, Lola. What's that? The 60s sometime? Had to be. That's when they were popular. 68, 9, 7. 1970. Oh, okay. Close. Yeah, so I got to tell you, when I read this story last night about this uh, Senate, uh, pardon me, the House Finance Committee, chaired by Representative Patrick McHenry. You may recall him if you watched any of the the uh, the speaker votes, the proceedings in the House there. He's the guy with the bow tie. I just, he just, he's the one that kind of sticks out. White hair, horn rim glasses, bow tie. So he's chairing this committee. And he said that the panel subcommittees will press ahead on diversity and inclusion as key priorities in the committees. But then he turns around and says, this is, this is kind of contradictory, this statement in my view. For four years, Democrats wasted the valuable and limited time and resources of our committee to push burdensome mandates on American job creators. Democrats' goal was to name and shame companies until they parroted their woke social agenda. What the heck do you think you're doing? So, he says that these committees will refocus on kitchen table issues that matter most to American families, but yet diversity, equity, and inclusion will still be a key theme in their deliberations. I don't get it. So, so looking at these other committees, you've got uh, Andy Barr of Kentucky who will chair the Subcommittee on Financial Institutions and Monetary Policy. He says their committee will continue to identify best practices and policies that continue to strengthen the financial industry's commitment to diversity and inclusion. No, that's central planning. That's out of your swim lane there, Representative Barr. Stay out. They'll figure it out. If it's in their best interest in operating their company, they'll do it. If it's not, they won't. Stay out. Why don't they get that? That's what we set them there for. And they're continuing to run plays out of the Democrat playbook. The Subcommittee on Digital Assets, Financial Technology, and Inclusion, chaired by Representative French Hill of Arkansas, says it will identify best practices and policies that continue to strengthen diversity and inclusion in the digital asset ecosystem. What is that all about? 
And it, and it just continues with Representative Blaine Lutmeyer of Missouri, chairs the Subcommittee on National Security, Illicit Finance, and International Financial Institutions, Representative Bill Heising of Michigan, the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigation, and they pair it the same line. We've got to continue to make sure diversity, equity, and inclusion is considered in our policies and seek best practices. No, that's not what you should be doing. These companies will figure out the best practices. The market will dictate it. Why don't they get that? The market dictates value, not government. Government stands in the way of it. It impairs the creation of value. There was Maxine Waters in the last Congress. She chaired this committee on housing and insurance. And uh, she created a subcommittee. Uh, pardon me, she chaired the Committee of Finance. She was the chair of the, of the Finance. She assigned right the heads of the various subcommittees within the committee. She created a whole new committee focused exclusively on diversity and inclusion. What is the goal here? Because Got to find jobs for all the African-American studies majors. Oh, Have you seen the explosion in that? Unbelievable. But they don't tell the truth about it. So Governor DeSantis has simply exposed the truth, which includes, as part of the, part of the pedagogy, shutting down all the prisons. Now, that's not a new idea. There are people on the left. Is it Representative Elon Omar, I believe, that a couple of years ago, we need to shut down all the prisons. Just empty everybody out. Oh, yeah, that'll work great. Meanwhile, in one of the most restrictive gun states in the country, California, we have two mass shootings within 48 hours. And it didn't fit their narrative, and they're so disappointed. They really are. They're disappointed. But they're beating the same drum that they need more laws. Right. But they were... Yeah, the, uh, the laws you wrote in the last 30 years really seem to work that way. Well. Don't do squat. But it didn't fit their narrative of hate crime. It's a hate crime, whatever that is. All crime is hate. So she says, Miss Waters said, and, and I'm saying this because it, it sure appears that the Republicans are just picking up where she left off, even though we put them in charge. Corporate America has recognized the need for institutionalizing and centralizing diversity and inclusion by establishing chief diversity officers within their ranks and creating offices and infrastructures around these high-ranking individuals. Also very highly compensated individual because it's a scam. It's a shakedown. Because forced diversity is not diversity. Forcing anything is the enemy of freedom. That's not to say that I'm supporting discrimination on the basis of immutable physical traits. No. But none of these people have ever come forward and said, yeah, that person didn't get the job, didn't get the promotion, didn't get the bonus, wasn't admitted strictly because of their race, their ethnicity, their gender identity, or any of that other stuff. All these physical characteristics. I've yet to see it. I can, on the other hand, share with you countless examples where the cis-heteropatriarchal people are, are being rejected, being denied. We just saw it in Virginia. 
wouldn't issue the National Merit Awards for fear they might offend people because guess who won most of them? The Asian population. Yeah, because they work harder at it. It's ingrained in their culture and society. Wish it were here. You know what's ingrained here is, what can the government give me? And what can I get for free? Yeah, they don't think like that. This is disturbing, and that's why I'm pointing it out. I just want folks to know that the Republicans we sent up there, and I can't blame our delegation, they're not in charge. But I wish they'd go have a, a, a chat with Speaker McCarthy and the, the uh, Representative McHenry here, who's in charge of this committee, saying, no, this isn't what our people want. Maybe I'm out in left field. Am I in left field here? I don't think so. This woke insurance that all these corporations have taken out in the formation of all these gigantic bureaucratic DEI organizations, business units, highly compensated. And you, I know people listening, you yourself, you've talked to people that work for these companies and say, I really don't agree with all this. I'm just forced to do it. Have you heard that? Oh, yeah. Over and over. Yeah, I got to do it because yeah, they make me. I really don't want to. Even managers that are implementing this are saying it. They feel compelled to do it. Well, it starts with our government. Because the signal sent there from our government is, if you're not on board, corporations, don't be coming for anything you may want from us, because we're not going to help you. And in fact, look no further than the situation in Mississippi. We had uh, Dr. Artigues and, uh, and Matt uh, Sharp from the Alliance Defending Freedom on the program yesterday talking about bills that have been introduced in our legislature that would prohibit gender affirmation care, and I use the word care loosely, on minors. There would be punishment for health care providers if they engaged in such treatment, and parents could possibly charge with child abuse, because they're minors, minors, not talking about adults. And we got confirmation from both of them yesterday, nope, you're an adult, you want to do that, like we've said on the program so many times. But the fear is the Biden administration is tying so much of what emanates from our federal government down to our state to adapting, adopting, I should say, and implementing these gender ideology policies. That's why this is important. They want to tell you how you've got to run your state. We're not going to give you that money that we sent to them. Coming right back here on Midday. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one. Element Well Studios. It's middays on Super Talk Mississippi. As Bonnie Tyler bumps us in here. 
Yeah, so once again, Nick Bain from the Mississippi House of Representatives on the program at 11.05, and then at 12.05, Senator Nicole Aikens-Boyd. Looking forward to those discussions. So just saw a story here on the Business Channel in the studio that <laughs> houses with gas stoves are now selling for a bit of a premium. All oh, the unintended consequences of stupidity. That's what that is. Just stupid. Good grief. I don't know what the goal of that is. It's misguided, what they tell you, as is typically the case. Hmm. I also need to pass on to you that the IRS says expect smaller refunds this year. And that's because so much of all this helicopter money from the pandemic did not occur in 2022. And uh, so they're telling folks, the IRS is, they're warning taxpayers as we get started in the 2023 tax filing season to expect smaller refunds due to pandemic relief measures that have been allowed to expire. That would include the child tax credits. That's become like the tax holy grail for the left. Got to send more money out. Make them more refundable. And, of course, no stimulus payments from the government in 2022. That last occurred in 2021. And when you combine all that together you're going to see refunds shrink this year. In general, you, my belief is you should set your withholding up so that you don't owe the government and they don't owe you. I don't want them using my money. I want to pay exactly what I owe and not have any refund, not have any payment due when I do my taxes. Now, most of my income comes from sources that where there are no withholdings, so I have to pay estimates. It's the way it works. Man, I cry every time I write those checks. Quarterly estimates. Just sent them in earlier this week. Did my duty. But working with my CPA, try to project income and then make the quarterly estimate payments such that when I do my tax return, I'm not getting a lot of money back, if any, and I'm not owing any. I don't want them using my money. just want to pay what I'm obliged to do by law. No more, no less. Some may think that's selfish, but yet the same people that say that do the same damn thing, of course. They've got an army of accountants that are searching for ways to avoid, not evade, avoid taxes, avoidance, perfectly legal. Despite what the left will tell you. And I tell you, I've been following Robert Reich and Bernie Sanders here lately. They are on a rant about wealth inequality and taxation in this country, the, uh, the debt ceiling. I, I just... I get pretty fired up just reading it. What's really disturbing is reading the comments of the trained SEALs that just buy into all this stuff. Yeah, let's just go get more taxes out of them. 
It's incredible. And they're all over the Trump tax cuts, once again. And I'll just um, proclaim that, as we have before on the program. This is, a, this is an epic fight setting up when the individual provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act expire here in, uh, in three years. And when that happens, it's going to be interesting to watch at a minimum. I fear that uh, the instability of the arguments and just the fact that it's being debated with no clear-cut outcome will have an effect on markets as well. Now, I know it's three years away. Just mark it down. We let you know here that this is coming. There's no doubt about it. It's going to be a big deal. Of course, Democrats are calling for the immediate expiration. Repeal the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act immediately. Paying no attention, of course, to the fact that we, under the Trump tax cuts, are producing record federal revenues. Record federal revenues. We just keep spending. It's almost like Democrats are all idiots. <laughs> record federal revenues. I mean, that's straight from the Department of Treasury. I'm not making this up or guessing at it. But what they'll tell you is, yeah, the reason we produce these deficits is because of the $2 trillion Trump tax cuts that went to his wealthy friends. And over and over, we have to debunk that. No, it's 1.5, and that's based on a CBO 10-year projection, which are always wrong, because we've already proven the CBO wrong, because we produce more revenue than they projected. So your estimates are wrong. And they just work with what they're given. I'm not faulting them. And they don't, as we've talked about before, they don't introduce and include dynamic scoring in their modeling. They just, it's just math without considering, well, I wonder how this might affect the macroeconomy, the microeconomy, and thus that could affect revenues. So they don't take that into consideration. But, and they'll sell you this idea that, yeah, if we just got rid of the Trump tax cuts, we, we wouldn't have a deficit. $1.4 trillion deficit two years in a row here. Good grief. On the C Spire tax line, CJ in the Delta is, I think, rather stunned as I was that the folks in the House running these finance subcommittees, including the chair of the finance uh, committee, Financial Services Committee is the formal official name, that would be Representative Patrick McHenry. Yes, CJ, they're all Republicans. That's why I'm on a rant about it, because I don't think that they are governing in accordance with the views of their constituents. I, again, I haven't talked to their constituents. It's just a gut feeling that they're ready to see an end to the the embedding of all this DEI ideology in every aspect of life. We're not all equal. We're not going to be. You got a problem with that? Take it up with God. Can't fix it. Enforcing diversity, enforcing inclusion solves no problem whatsoever. It, uh, In fact, I would argue that it creates more problems. Forced charity is not noble, by the way. A gun to your head saying, give money, that's not noble. 
force is always the enemy of freedom. If you have to force people to accept that they're oppressors and see everything through this lens of racial groupthink, that's not solving any problem. That just further divides us. In, in some sort of twisted group identity, we've seen situations where in schools, small elementary school students have been forced to accept their role in slavery. You've seen that? It's pervasive. Simply because of they have to happen to be of the same race. I thought they lectured us about profiling people that way and stereotyping people. It's precisely what they're doing. Their entire philosophy of government is built on it. Hmm. After they take care of the banking industry on the ceasefire tax line here, do pro sports next. There's not enough middle-aged white men, says Barry from Hamilton. Not, en- not enough cis-heteropatriarchal people. <laughs> oh, Tim and McGee says, WTH about the experience instead of all this diversity and inclusion. I agree, Tim. In fact, what I've suggested is, instead of business units, organizational units within larger organizations that are labeled as and focused on diversity, inclusion, uh, and uh, equity and inclusion, excuse me, maybe we need departments of exclusion where they identify exclusionary practices. That's what's a problem. Not forcing inclusion. If someone's being excluded, well, let's find out why. If it's because of their immutable physical characteristics. If it's got to do with performance or merit or qualifications, sorry. That's that's the way the world works. That would be what our texter just said. Let's put some old fat white men out on the basketball court and see how many people show up and pay. Coming right back here on Middays, Representative Nick Bain at 11.05. Stay with us. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. That's bumping us into this segment here on uh, Middays. Of course, a Mississippi connection in the lyrics there. We've talked about that before. You say you came to Baltimore from Ole Miss. (laughs) Well, if I'm not mistaken, at least one of the members of Starbuck was in a band called Eternity Something. That was based out of Mississippi. That's right. I believe it was um, 
Was it Bruce Blackman? This is, seems to be the... I know it's Bruce, I'm pretty sure. Was the... I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, Bruce Blackman. So it would have been Bruce and Johnny Walker, because uh, the name I was thinking of was Johnny Walker. Okay, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Right, several of them. Bruce, honestly, looking here, was originally from uh, Atlanta, has southern roots, but not Mississippi roots. But is a good. Heard of these children was the name of the band. Uh, Yes, that's right. I remember that. Good. Their uh, one and only hit, Mrs. Bluebird, topped out at number sixty-nine on the Billboard Hot One Hundred in nineteen (laughs) sixty-seven. Cool. Out of Cleveland, Mississippi. Yeah. So, all right. Well, this particular report here, this bio. Okay, Bruce was born in Greenville. I knew he had a, a Mississippi uh, connection uh, more than just being, uh, I guess, residing in Atlanta. Good tune, though. What? Okay, I'm watching a report here. A&W adds pants to its polarizing mascot? What the heck's that all about? I don't know that their mascot was all that polarizing. I think they're kind of poking fun at M&M's like Skittles did. Ah, Instead of of just sharing the (laughs) M&M's message to the consumers, (laughs) they spoofed it. And uh, the A&W bear is now wearing pants. I love it. I love it. Uh, Yeah, so a friend was just uh, texting me about the Trump tax cuts. It is true that the pass-through rules are brutally complicated in the Trump uh, tax cuts bill, the law. And, and there is a distinction between the way path, uh, the way pass-through entities that are defined as professional and the, and the code actually specifies those businesses versus those that aren't. Typically, we're talking about law firms and, and uh, medical clinics, etc., and there's, there's different rules that apply. And so his friend says, yeah, it actually resulted in uh, a bit of an increase because they don't qualify for the, for the deduction, the pass-through deduction of 20%. And there's, it's, it's incredibly complicated. But this all goes back to, well, okay, we need a flat tax. A flat tax on what? Because when you read the code of how pass-through entities work, which are the majority of the businesses in this country, they're different than C-corporations, traditional large C-corporations that file taxes and pay taxes as a corporation, whereas sub-S companies, sub-S entities pass through the income to the owners of the company, and then they pay taxes individually. It's just incredibly complicated. But it's going to be a war, I'm telling you. Republicans are the problem. Okay, this is from Zach and Starkville. He says, we need more Democrats. That would help. That would help. Republicans are the problem. Ben from Madison. Gerard, in your opinion, do you think Secretary Watson is going to run for Secretary of State again? He's been very close to the vest on that, and we're coming up on the deadline uh, precisely a week from today. Right? Something like that, yeah. According to my calendar. February 1st. So we shall see. Time draws nigh, as they say. Dude was from Greenville and wanted to go to Ole Miss, but got a track scholarship to Mississippi State. How about that? That's some great info there, talking about singer-songwriter Bruce Blackman, best known for the song that Rhino just played in the band Starbuck, Moonlight 
feels right. Do we need all these committees? I agree. So I think that's in reference to this. Um, well, we have the committee over this, but we need a subcommittee, subcommittee. over that. And that, right. that subcommittee needs to meet in secret over this. And it's to- I totally agree with uh, this person. I don't think identified him, but uh, on the 228. I completely agree. That's the first thing I thought when I read this report about Representative Patrick McHenry, who uh, chairs the Senate. Uh, pardon me, pardon me, the House Financial Services Committee. And when you go through in Hattiesburg. Oh, thank you. And we go through all these um, subcommittees and their chair and their uh, subject matter. I agree. Do we need all this? Sounds to me like central planning socialism of the financial sector in this company. In this country. That don't work too well. I agree. Great text. Appreciate that. Time for a break here on Middays. It's top of the hour. That means the news coming up. Representative Nick Bain in the Element Well Studios next. And now, Another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone midday super talk mississippi back in the element well studios on this hump day joining us now representative nick bain from district two up in uh, northeast mississippi chairs the house judd b committee representative bain always good to see you sir thanks for coming in yeah thanks gerard for having me always fun so it's uh it's been a more active session that I think was anticipated, uh, it being an election year. Your thoughts? It has been, and there's still a lot to, lot more to do. Uh, but as far as early on, we've talk, tackled some big issues. And uh, typically, like you said, election years are, are try to, you try to be a little bit uh, under the radar, if you will, yeah. come in and, and pass the uh, some stuff and pass the budget and get home, but that's yeah. uh, not been the case. I think that's been consistent with what the speaker said. Of course, this is his last one, uh, and, and uh, with what the lieutenant governor said beginning uh, before the session, that you know we're going to we're going to continue to tackle big issues. Yeah. Well, the speaker, when he was in uh, just a couple of days into the session, uh, in, indicated that elimination, full elimination of the income tax, still his top priority. Though I, I don't think I've seen any legislation to do that at this yeah, point. Yeah, I don't know that you have. And, of course, the the, the bill to uh, – th- those revenue bills, that deadline's not yet yeah. upon us. Yeah, so, so we got time. I, I tell you, we have time, and I think you'll see that. I think all of us, myself included, are all on board with him uh, on, on eliminating the income tax. And uh, the, the question is, how are we going to do that? Yeah. I think we're all on board with doing that. And Speaker Pro Tem, Jason White, uh, indicated the same as well. It's a high priority to him. So what about uh, your your committee, uh, Judd B? What's uh, going on there that you're focused on? Yeah, we uh, continue to, to focus on law enforcement issues. Um, you know, we have some stuff that we're looking at. I, back in the summer, Gerard, I talked with the police chiefs of, of Mississippi. Some of their big issues, obviously, was pay. Uh, yesterday, we passed a bill out of, of Judd B that will 
basically the state will supplement municipalities and counties um, all over the state, supplement pay for law enforcement officers. So we've got that uh, going through the process. We passed it out. It goes over to appropriations now. Uh, also, we passed out another. Their, their other big issue was mental health and, and trying to uh, stem the tide. Um, and I think I've said this either on your show or others, that mm-hmm. mental health is an issue for them. Uh, they spend a whole lot of time uh, dealing with responding to mental health calls and uh, almost to the point to where they can't respond to the other stuff. So, yeah. so we're trying to uh, have a framework for them to go by. Those are two of the big issues. Again, we're looking at other stuff with the fentanyl stuff. We've talked about that before. Uh, you know, uh, Representative Yancey passed out a bill with the test strips, which I fully support that and decriminalizing that. We're also looking at uh, an issue uh, with uh, what they call gas station heroin. I don't know if you're familiar with yep. that, but it's this T-neptine uh, product that they have. We're looking at ways to uh, – I hate to use the word regulate, but that's essentially what we're doing is to regulate it, but just to make it safer for for the public. Yeah. So that's an issue that we're looking at, along with other stuff that the, that the prosecutors have asked for. We're, we've got a bill coming. You saw the governor uh, did an executive order regarding TikTok. I don't know what yeah. that is. Uh, <laughs> I, I do know that it can be a problem, and there's some issues with uh, potential spying on, on people through that uh, platform, social media platform. So we're going to have a bill to outlaw that on um, on state devices and also on city and county devices. Uh, so we got a lot we got a lot, a lot to go. And, and, of course, you know, last week uh, through the Public Health Committee, we, we handled the transgender uh reassignment uh, bill, yeah. if you will, yeah. uh, called the REAP Act, which I forget the, what that all stands for, but basically uh, regulating and, and prohibiting uh, transgender uh, reassignment surgeries for those under the age of 18. Yeah. So that that is getting a lot of attention, as you know, uh, in, in both chambers. Uh, would you care to handicap yeah. uh, that bill getting to across the finish line? No, I think it will. I mean, it passed in the House 78 to 30, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. which, you know, you had a couple of, I think there's 76 uh, Republicans, so yeah, I think you had one or two Democrats that, that crossed over, and the rest of that was um, was uh, Democrat, the 28th would have been all Democrats. Now, the, the big thing and the telling thing about that is there was a number of people that just didn't vote, uh, and, and that's that, that happened from time to time, uh, but I, I think it, it passed the House pretty easily. I think it'll pass the Senate uh now there'll 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 still be a lot of debate on it, and uh, in some respects gnashing of the teeth about yeah. it. But I, I think it will get across the finish line in the Senate and go to the governor's desk, and he'll sign it. Well, as you know, there was uh, there was an event yesterday mm-hmm. that was held at uh, the Mississippi Trade Mart, and then some legislators got together uh, after that, uh, and and are still discussing this. Uh, just concerned about the fate of the legislation at this point. And, of course, you're always nervous until it, it gets across the finish line and gets enacted into law with the governor's signature uh, getting through both houses. That's right. And then after that, you have to worry about, you know, Arkansas, Alabama did the same bill or, or very similar uh, bills. And I know uh, there were some legal counsel there at that rally yesterday that, that talked about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the legal challenges that will emerge from this, uh, I know that Arkansas was challenged, maybe Alabama was too, uh, that they've had some, um, I think 
the procedure of that, that there's an injunctive that's been in place. But like I said on the floor, when that question was asked me, they asked me on the floor, why are we going to do this when it's just going to cost taxpayers money? Why is it going to be challenged when it's going to be deemed unconstitutional? Gerard, that's the same arguments they had about the Gestational Age Act, which eventually went all the way to the Supreme Court and overturned Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Yeah, true, and and that may be the fate of yep. uh, all this legislation that's being enacted in the states that are that are pursuing uh, prohibitions against gender affirming care. But you can't govern uh, just like any. You can't govern with that. You have to govern on what you think is the right thing to do. Sure, and and sure. I firmly believe the right thing to do is for uh, a child who is maybe uh, suffering through this transition having some confusing times or whatever, I think the best thing to do is is to have a wait-and-see approach to that. You're seeing a lot of dialogue about that. Uh, when, when we were arguing the bill, you're seeing European com- countries who, who went very far to the left with this, kind of like you see the uh, United States doing now. They went very far to the left, and now they're, they're, they're tapering back and uh, have come back to more of a conservative and a, a – uh, apprehensive approach toward this type of of, of medicine and, and having a wait and see approach. So yeah. for me that's the thing. And and you don't you don't govern in anticipation of, of legislation. Uh, you do what you think is right and that's what the House has done. Yeah, well, we'll certainly keep an eye on that and see where that goes. Uh, it's an incredibly controversial issue that you and I were just talking before we came on the air. It's it's somewhat um, stunning to think that we're even having to address that um, in at, at a at a lawmaking level, that this would be an issue. Of course, uh, opponents of uh, this bill would say that that puberty blockers and hormone treatment actually improve the mental well-being of uh, of, of youngsters that that uh, receive that. But but of course, you've got medical doctors and more importantly, people that have done it once they become adults come out and speak out. And many have uh, clinical health issues for life that they still are dealing with as that's, adults. That's right. And and I did what uh, a, a great deal of research on this when I was told I was going to handle the bill, and, and that's what I discovered. There's this rising cohort, if you will, of, of detransitioners going yeah. back who are who are regretting what they did yeah. uh, and, and said, look, that they just uh, – and, and take, for example, just an ordinary parent who takes their kid to the doctor who may have a cold or a fever. That parent leans very heavily on that doctor. Sure. We all do. Sure. Um, and so that's just a question that, that I, I have some uh, – maybe I'm a little jaded, but I have some uh, – hesitation as to how pure some of these doctors' motives are. Yeah. It's crazy. Of course, you got the, the blue states that are going in the other direction, literally requiring teachers and administrators to inform students about uh, the availability of puberty blockers and hormone treatments at a young age so they can pause uh, the progression, the natural body's progression, until they figure out what they are, which you say, without having to tell parents about it, That's which right. is crazy It's to me. crazy. It, yeah. it, it's just a it, – it's such a foreign concept for me uh, and, and for a lot of people that I represent and for, uh, I think, the majority of Mississippians. I agree. Uh, before we go to break here, can you hang around through the break? I can, yes, Yeah, sir. we got Representative Nick Bain. But uh, before we go, uh, Rhino and I were talking yesterday about this bill that I believe you authored concerning uh, bribery of uh, right of public officials. Yeah, and that came to me at the request of Shad White. 
Okay. He, he asked for that. It's just going to. I think right now uh, there's a statute of limitations, or there, there may there's a, a small statute of limitations on those type of prosecutions. We're just expanding that out to five years, giving a little bit more time. Would this apply to all elected officials? Yes, sir. Okay, all at all levels. And, and, all yes, right. sir. You're, if you're elected, I guess if you're paid for by the taxpayers, you're subject to these statutes. That's right. We got Representative Dick Bain in the Element Wealth Studios. Stay with us. Coming right back. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Speaking of Mississippi musical artist, the great Jimmy Buffett, bumping us into this segment here. We've got Representative Nick Bain in the Element Well Studio. So, this this bribery bill, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It is. Yeah, it is. I think he just needed it. Uh, thought that it was. Uh, was hindering some prosecutions in some other areas, okay. so he just thought they needed to expand it. I tell Auditor Shad White uh, on a regular basis, can't we just get you to be the Maytag repairman so that you don't have all these prosecutions? I mean, he got tired of every day, you know, seeing a new report where the auditors found somebody stealing taxpayer money. Yeah, uh, he he's he's tough, and I represent a small town, and they're they're uh, they're always saying, as a lawyer, I represent a small town, and they're always saying, well, we got to make sure everything's right. We don't want Shadrack coming in here, you know. <laughs> and most of those schemes are they're not that complicated. That's I right. mean, it's it's pretty simple to discover that as part of a standard audit. But yeah, they need to be held accountable and prosecuted, and he he doesn't hesitate to do that. So we're grateful for that. Uh, what else you got going on in uh, Judd B? Yeah, we got. Uh, of course, you know, we talked about the the, the the bills that have to do with uh, law enforcement. We're also going to have some NRA bills. Um, we've got a bill coming out for uh, suppressors or silencers, if you will, that allows the state if if they're manufactured here, making them legal. I think that's been some yeah. uh, legislation or uh, some cases across the country about that. We've got another one that I didn't know. I talked to the NRA early this this session. I didn't even know this was an issue. Was apparently you've got uh, credit cards that have a code on them. Yeah, and if you take that, if you use that credit card at some stores or whatever, uh, that particular credit card, whatever you want to call it, uh, won't allow you to buy the ammo or the uh, the guns. Okay, because uh, you know it's it's whatever they're 
agenda is, but they they won't let you buy it. I got so, you. So we're gonna. So the credit card issuer, the credit like let's just say, and this is just yeah. an example, like an American Express. You take right. your American Express. You want to buy some ammo at uh, uh, wherever Walmart yeah. or, or your local mom and pop store, and you take that, and the credit card puts a block on it because they don't want you using. Their company to buy ammo. So what are we doing in Mississippi? So, so we're going to make that basically illegal that okay. they can't do that. Okay. Uh, and that's other states have been doing that. Um, that, that somehow or another, far more sophisticated than me, but all everything you buy has some type of code attached to it. It does. So it's this, got a, like a commodity code, right. an industry standard commodity code. Yep. So this code, we're, it, that they code it. However, we're going to make it illegal that they can't make. Okay. That that that, and that and for me that's that's just. Free market? That's just American. I mean, if you if I want to buy something, I should be able to use my money to buy it. Well, but I, I okay, so I, I'll offer the a counter argument on that one. Well, as a consumer, if I want to buy that, well, I just should get a credit card from a different credit card issuer. Because these Visa and MasterCards, for example, are associated with a financial institution. It's, I don't think it's Visa Corporate or MasterCard Corporate that has instituted these restrictions. I think that's done by the issuing financial institution. Well, just get your credit card from one that allows it. Yeah, well, I understand that argument, but if, but still, uh, you know, people have the right, the constitutional right. That's the difference. They have a constitutional right for their firearms and to buy firearms. And, uh, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm well, not, I appreciate that. But yeah. they don't have a constitutional right to use a specific credit card they to don't. do that. And, if, and, then, and then they can get another credit card if yeah. that's what they choose. But in, in any event, we're trying to, we're trying to do that that was an NRA bill coming toward uh, to us. Uh, we talked about the TikTok stuff. We talked about uh, we're going to uh, expand some um, uh, some of the like the mental health courts and some of these alternative sentencing uh, ways uh, uh, to help those. We've got uh, the Department of Public Safety. I met with them this morning. Uh, they they want to up the the death benefit for our first responders and others who. Uh, who who may die in the line of duty or even not in the line of duty? So we're we're going to try to help them. The big bill here in Jackson, which just doesn't really impact anybody but those here in Jackson, is we're we're looking at the Capital Complex District. Now the Capital Complex District, for those that don't live in Jackson, we created I don't know a, probably ten square mile district a couple of years ago uh, within Jackson that the Capitol Police has jurisdiction over. Yeah. That is going to be expanded. We're we're looking at expanding that north hmm. even uh up here to County Line Road would be covered really? by the Capitol Police. From uh, the Capitol. Mm-hmm. So is there overlap with JPD when you're in the city limits on that? It's going to be completely exclusive jurisdiction for Capitol Police. And they're going to have their own judicial district. Uh, they, so the legislature has, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but fine. you have the power to do that? We, we did it. We already have it. It's already there. We're just expanding it over. Uh, okay. Creating so you can this, encroach upon a city and we're say create, we're, we're taking over your your law enforcement. If, and and Jackson, uh, for all intents and purposes, pretty much agrees with this. So, okay. So uh, we're helping. It's it's a you know Jackson crime's a big issue no doubt and and this is something when we had our crime hearings in the summer that they talked about they wanted help from okay. the Capitol Police uh, Capitol Police wants to help them um, so you're going to see Capitol District be uh, the Capitol Complex District be expanded uh, up here north to okay. the county line and it, it goes down south to the I guess to the river or somewhere along those yep. lines I'm not uh, around the downtown area probably just south of the downtown just, uh, area just south of there yeah. maybe to where twenty 
comes yeah. across through yep. there. 2055 um, intersect. Right. Yep. right. Um, and so you're going to see that. Capitol Police will have jurisdiction over that. Also, uh, Representative Lamar has a bill creating a, a separate judicial district, okay. uh, allowing for new circuit judges and a DA just for that Capitol Complex district. Wow. So that that per, that judicial district will be there to try to help, as you know, the, the, the backlog of circuit court yeah, is no enormous. It's so terrible. this is a way to, to alleviate that and hopefully to uh, uh, to get people uh, more accountable for the crimes. Also, we're looking at – I did not know until we had the hearing that the city of Jackson, Gerard, does not have a jail. They do not. I know. I met with the lieutenant governor on that about a year ago. So we're uh, going to hopefully – provide a jail, that jail give it over to Capitol Police, let Capitol Police and the Department of Public Safety run that jail, uh, along with, in in, in uh, congruence with and agreeance with uh, Jackson Police. So, just to clarify, there is a physical jail downtown. There is. There is. It's just not staffed, it's just so not, it's not in use. It's not open. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, Representative Bain, it leads to just uh, arresting uh, perpetrators and letting them go. That's right. Because you can't hold them. You can't, uh, the only place they take them is out in Raymond. Hines County. Right. Yeah. Which, uh, what is we, Raymond? 15, 20 yeah, minutes? Down yeah. on Highway 18. And it, and it's honestly in need of some uh, improvement. No doubt. Yeah. I hadn't been out there in years, but but it's... Uh, it's desperate it, need of improvement. It, no doubt about it. So uh, that's some of the stuff we're looking at to curb the, the, the crime in Jackson, along with, I know there was some talk about, and you're more familiar with this than I am, with some of the, the like, Flowood police driving in, into Jackson. Yeah. And chasing people, we, we've got some bills to address okay. that. So, okay. in, in any event, that's the stuff we're looking at in Judd B. What, what I hope this results in, and I don't know if there's a way to include some sort of uh, uh, conditions in this this uh, legislation, is that the city of Jackson redeploys those officers and their resources that are patrolling and and working the area you're talking about, expanding the capital police into, to the other areas of town. That's the idea. Okay. And so they have the more ho- coverage. That's the hopeful. You know, we're looking at paying them more. Um, but again, that you're exactly right. We're not looking to uh, duplicate our efforts in Northeast Jackson and yeah. around the capital. We're looking at providing help for here yeah. so that they can put resources in other places that yeah. need it. And um, I, I haven't looked at the statistics, but my gut feel is that that particular area we're talking about that would come under the jurisdiction of Capitol Police, probably lower rates of crime, I'm thinking. Um I, I don't have those yeah. numbers, but I would agree with you. Just living here and mm-hmm. watching the reports, just gut feel, most of it doesn't seem to occur in that region, which is, is good, I think, and that the Capitol Police would focus on that and the city of Jackson would focus on the more crime-ridden areas. That's right. Okay, interesting. That's the well, idea. I'm, I'm glad to know that, because I was confused about this, can the legislature just step in, sort of commandeer that area, and and um, and it become the, the purview from a um, law enforcement perspective of the state? That's that's what we've done. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I, can't remember, I can't remember the, when that the genesis of that happened, but it's been in the last... A decade when we yeah. when we set up the Capitol complex. But. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's that's fascinating, and and I'm also pleased to hear that uh, the mayor is on board with this as well. Desperately need help, as you know, grossly understaffed. That's my understanding that that the city of Jackson and uh, all the representatives have kind of got together to 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 get this 
district together. And don't have a jail. An operating don't have jail. jail. Got to go 18, 20 miles Which is down just the road. unfathomable for me, but in any event, we're, we're looking to correct it. Mm. And that's, frankly, overcrowding the Hines County Jail that's as right. well, as you well know. That's so right. they start doing triage, and you end up with people back on the street committing the crime all over again. That's right. And and they and that person has no uh, fear of authority yeah. or accountability. Yeah. So. Exactly. Representative Bain, thanks so much for coming in. I'm sure we'll be talking soon, and we'll see where all this legislation goes. Appreciate the update. Thanks, Gerard. Thank Appreciate you. It. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Senator Nicole Aikens Boyd at 12.05. Stay with us. If I can get With Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Yes, here comes Amos. Amos Moses was a Cajun. He lived by himself in the swamp. He hunted alligator for a living. He just knocked him in the head with a stone. The Louisiana law gonna get you, Amos. We are back in the Element Wealth Studios. It's middays on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm sorry I didn't see this question on the text line when Representative Bain was in the studio wants to know about the suppressor law. You familiar with that? I'm looking at the list of bills. I, I may be missing it. I don't see anything related to that. I've got it somewhere on my track. Let me find it. Okay. See what we can do there. Thompson Greenwood said, so he's going to grandstand and not answer for 401. Yeah, so I'm going to withhold any questions on that, Thomas. And I'll uh, I'll explain 401 here in a second until my opinion piece is produced. I'm going to – I just feel like that I've got a little more ammunition in opposition of that legislation once uh, my thoughts are expressed there in writing. And I know that many of them will read it, will consume it. So it's something that I completed uh, last night, and it's going through the proofreading process right now. always send my work to someone that has a good eye for for proofreading, and uh, that's occurring right now. I don't know that it will be uh, published <laughs> at the uh, in its present length. I think it's 1,300 words. I had a lot to say about that, talking about House Bill uh, 401 uh, specifically. And uh, 401, I think we're talking about the same legislation here, uh, Thomas. This is the bill that... Yeah, the anti-test yeah, bill. Yeah, right. It's the, the vehicle sale restriction bill. So we we uh, we got off on a fairly epic rant on that late last week, as I recall. I found the uh, suppressor bills. Looks okay. like there's a few of them, a couple in the House and a couple in the Senate. Okay. Uh, House Bill 656, authored by Representative Joey Hood, yep. is an act to provide that a firearm suppressor manufacturer and remaining in the state of Mississippi is not subject to federal laws and regulations governing firearm suppressors. There's another one that does... 
essentially the same thing as House Bill 912 yeah. by Representative Brent Anderson. That's the ones in the House. And then in the Senate, there's a similar bill that is Senate Bill 2246, filed by Senator Kevin Blackwell. And uh, another one, Senate Bill 2885, that is only a page long, filed by Senator Melanie Sojourner. And so what all do, what do these bills do exactly? It's a... It would basically state that if the suppressor is manufactured within the state of Mississippi okay. and is sold to a Mississippi resident, therefore it never leaves the state of Mississippi, that it is not subject to federal laws regarding firearm suppressors. I see. I'm not sure how that works I, when it comes to the, uh, I guess, what I, I always thought federal law trumped state law, took precedence. I don't know how that works. I'm sure that's a complex legal question that the courts may end up having to settle, but the federal government issues a law, and then you issue a law in the state that basically nullifies the federal law. Sounds like what this is doing. But, so, I mean, the same has been done for medical marijuana. Yeah, that that's absolutely and true. And that, But that's, as you well as you know, because the federal government just looks the other way chooses to look the other way. Whether or not they would on this, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's an interesting concept, though. So I, I think the I think of the legal term, if I'm not mistaken, is which law would succeed the other. I, th- I think maybe is how that's described, but uh, well, that's interesting. Okay. Now, I think it's crazy that we even have to do this sort of stuff, honestly. And it's a, a function of a, a federal government that is just expanding its tentacles beyond its authority, I believe. Beyond well, when it comes to suppressors, it's governance by the ignorant. Okay. You have laws put in place to ban suppressors or to limit your ability to buy a suppressor simply because the people making the laws in D.C., think suppressors work like the action movies of the 80s, where when you pull the trigger, you just hear a... Yeah. And that's not how suppressors work. Okay, They've been proven to be beneficial to the health of the shooter as far as their hearing health, because you're still recommended to wear hearing protection, but when using a suppressor, the crack of the weapon is much lower, therefore there's less risk to damaging your hearing. Okay. It's not like everybody's all of a sudden going to become James Bond and be able to kill willy-nilly and you don't know what's happened. Yeah. So, once again, it's folks that are making laws that really don't have a clue what they're making laws about. Welcome to the federal government. (laughs) Yeah, so the Constitution, I think in general, says that federal law is supreme to state law, but... Look, it's it's worth a try because it holds, it stands until somebody challenges it, as I understand it. That's how it's Roe v. Wade, essentially, is what happened there. So that, that got a challenge. And it got to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court ruled. Same deal here. See what happens. I got it. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I would imagine it has to do with the Commerce Clause and how many federal laws and regulations are put in place simply because of the Commerce Clause. Whereas if it's not leaving the state, the federal government can't use the Commerce Clause. Totally agree. All right, so we'll see what happens there. The, the Commerce Clause gets hijacked for lots of, lots of uh, um, p- 
political whims, honestly, which don't really... Unfortunately, it's, it, that's such a, an abstract, almost subjective term that it, it, it does get hijacked. And it gets commandeered by both sides, you know, for their, their benefit. And I'm not sure any of it is accurate. And that, that's the, again, that's the problem is it's just not specific enough. And that's how we ended up with a bloated federal government with lots of programs and policies that most would argue that are strict constitutionalist depart from the founders' vision of federal government. I, and I'm with them. Ben from Madison says, talking about this HB 401, which would prohibit the sale of a vehicle, a new vehicle, directly from the manufacturer to a consumer in the state of Mississippi. And it even would prohibit such a transaction through a brick-and-mortar store owned by the manufacturer. So pretty much, if you want to buy a new car in Mississippi, you'd have to buy it through an independently owned dealer. That's the traditional legacy model, been around for a long time. You guys have all seen them out there. You see the Ford dealership, to, and I'm just talking about the, the, the domestic manufacturers and the various GM brand dealerships, and you'll see the, the, the um, standard signage featuring the logos of the manufacturer, the vehicles that they sell, and then typically you'll see the name of the dealership. Often it's the owner's name. That's the independently owned franchise dealer. That's where you'd have to go buy your cars. Even if you wanted to just dial one up online and have it shipped to you, which is being offered. And it's the way, the primary means by which Tesla, who which, by the way, owns just under 70% of the electric vehicle market, that's how they sell their vehicles. But coming up on their heels, you know this, Apple, Google, Rivian, and all the other mainstream manufacturers are all introducing. And they, and yeah, I just went blank on the name, but there's a Korean manufacturer that's dipping its toe in sure the is. electric vehicle market in America. Sure is. And, and like it or not, electric vehicles are the future of new vehicles, and all these manufacturers are investing heavily in uh, producing the, the next generation of electric vehicles. And... I've seen comments from their management, by the way, management associated with these uh, working for these companies that presently sells through the traditional two-tier model where the brick-and-mortar dealerships are owned by independent franchisees. They've even said, yeah, we we got to figure out a way to enter the direct sales business. Look no further than Target and Walmart, how they responded to Amazon. Yeah, we're going to have to be part of that as well. Now, I think what we learned from that is there's still a big market of people that want to go to the store. So it's multiple routes to market. RTM, that is what Which it's Which is why to. I say it's a bad bill. Why would the legislature make you spend more money on a vehicle by paying the overhead of the dealership, paying the mechanics at the dealership, paying to keep the lights on, paying to keep the free coffee in the pot, when you can shave that money off and buy a direct? Only if, in fact, the consumer is more comfortable with that model and feels like um, and, and is receptive to the value proposition of a local dealership. So my advice to them is, 
you better get buckled up here and figure out what your value proposition is because you're subject to this disruption like every other dang industry on the planet is uh, and, and in this country and you, you better sit down and think about what is my value proposition and how am I going to survive and thrive in uh, this, this new approach to selling vehicles. Coming right back on Middays. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. It's middays, and we're in the Element Well Studios on this. Hump day. Mike from Madison says the state legislature has all power not prohibited by the federal state constitutions and not preempted by the federal government. So, yes, the legislature can take over a municipality's law enforcement. Well, the reason I ask that question, Mike, is that there could have been existing law on the books passed in the state of Mississippi by the legislature that would have limited that or prohibited it. I, I get uh, how the the order of progression and, and the Supreme Clause, I, I appreciate that. that. That's why. I just thought maybe there was something already in place that would uh, forbid uh, such a, an encroachment like that, if you will. It goes on to say the silencer issue is complicated. Federal law always preempts state law if the federal law is valid. Well, it the only way federal law is invalidated, of course, is if it goes to the Supreme Court. So the federal law would have been enacted under the Commerce Clause. Yep, we talked about that. The legislature is trying to say if the silencers stay within the state, then the federal law should not apply because there's no interstate commerce, but that's a bad argument. The federal courts will likely overturn that. The Commerce Clause did not operate by limiting the commerce to intrastate. Yeah, and I think that's the uh, that's all accurate, but it is what we said. If well, First of all, Rhino, you made the point that, hey, if they don't know and they're not seeking it, well then, yeah, you, you can act in accordance with whatever state laws are passed, and you made a great point. Same as applies to medical marijuana or even recreational marijuana, which is still Schedule One substance at the federal level, and it's, it's why you've seen reaction in some cases from financial institutions and and just uh, other private sector organizations for for a fear of possibly breaching federal law. But I think the reality is the federal government just looks the other way. And I think the same could be the case here, unless, as Mike points out, somebody files a lawsuit and it, it, uh, it proceeds all the way up to the Supreme Court, and then the court would have to sort it out. Yeah, that's all, that's all valid. That's all relevant. But the state could still put something in place, and the same as a possibility with respect to this transgender legislation, the legislation that would prohibit gender reassignment surgery. We've got also Title IX bills that are, that are um, being uh, considered by the legislature. So yeah, all that's true, and it's um, in every case, it's just a matter if somebody wants to mount up a lawsuit, sue somebody, take them to court, in this case the state government, and then the attorney general would would be 
required to defend it in that case would be the state would be listed as a defendant. I guess. I mean, I don't know what all the plaintiffs may name as defendants, but I think in general that just traverses through the court system ultimately to the Supreme Court, and then we get a ruling there. Ben from Madison says, uh, well, before I get to that, Thompson Greenwood says, and they'll uphold the federal convictions. The courts won't overturn state law. The federal government will simply convict residents who think they are legal due to state law. I just don't see them doing it. I don't see them making that a high priority. I could be wrong about that. I just don't see them uh, just mounting and assigning a lot of resources to pursuing people using these suppressors. Just don't see it. I mean, how many people got busted for copyright infringement during the time of Napster? Yeah, none. That I know of, but... Um, I mean, there was the occasional story, like the kid that was using his grandma's internet to download it, and the grandma got busted. Yeah, okay. But it's probably a handful out yeah. of how many people were illegally downloading music via Napster. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, so... Federal you, law, it's against the law. And you, you could cite all kinds of other similar situations as well. Uh, no, I don't think they'll make guns violations a priority, Thomas. I think they will if somebody uses a suppressor to go commit uh, serial murder or mass murder. Yeah, I do think that would probably heighten the interest in that. But if they're just out using it or just have it in their possession and there's no incident, no, I don't think so. I don't think you. I, I just don't see that. We'll see. Stephen Brookhaven says the Fed turns a blind eye towards substances that make people complacent, yet frowns on what makes them free. Yeah, I, but it's all about what's in in the law. I mean, the the key is is we we um we we should if we we want to make it legal, talking about in this case marijuana. States have already already done that at a at a fairly high rate. Uh, 35 or so, I believe, have enacted medical marijuana and 20-something, I think half the states, recreational. I think it's up to 38 medical. Okay, could be right, yeah. That might include so, D.C., but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So roughly two-thirds medical and I think around half recreational because there have been a few that have uh, enacted recreational laws here recently in the last couple of years. Yeah, but I, I hear you. It, it, it was Thomas that said, uh, oh no, excuse me, Ben from Madison was talking about the uh, HB 401. That's the uh, bill that would restrict automobile sales, new vehicle sales. Governor Rees have stated again and again he doesn't want Mississippi to be a good place for business. He wants Mississippi to be the best state for business. If he's true to his word, he'll veto it if it makes it to his desk. I totally agree, and I believe he would if it made it to his desk. Coming right back with Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd. Stay with us. And now, now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi.
We are back in the Element Wealth Studios. It is middays on this. Hump day. Joining us now in the studio, Senator Nicole Akins Boyd. She represents District 9, which includes Lafayette. <laughs> Lafayette? I'm thinking about Lafayette, Louisiana. I had a story on that earlier. Lafayette, of course, <laughs> County. And Panola County chairs the Senate Study Group on Women, Children, and Families and serves as the vice chair of the Senate Universities and College Colleges Committee. So, Senator, good to see you. It's been a more active session than was in anticipated to this point. It has been a very active session, and I think we are, I know we're just getting started. We are um, definitely, um, we are in full-fledged right now in full committee hearings. We have a deadline on um, Tuesday, and so we are going crazy right now over there, so with committee meetings and hearings and everything else. So, so explain the, this first deadline for the benefit of so our So the audience. first deadline is everything, every bill that's a Senate bill has to come through committee and get passed through sometimes multiple committees before we were able to take it on the floor. And you'll have a huge number of bills at that point that will die, yeah. that they won't have time to make it onto the calendar, or the chairman just determined that this is not a good year for those bills, or maybe they're bad ideas. Okay. And so a lot of stuff will die at that point in time. So we've been super busy um, really kind of going through. I had a subcommittee um, that I chaired yesterday, and I think we went through about 20 bills yesterday. Wow. Um, so we'll be um, kind of doing this in all our different committees. Um, I think I went through this morning, I had two committee hearings, and I think we went through about 25 bills all total. Okay. So one that you are, have authored is the Early Intervention Pilot Project. Tell us about that. So one of the things that we did with the Women, Children's, and Families Committee is um, we, we had been hearing kind of from practitioners across the state that they were having children um, really that needed speech therapy, OT, PT, and they needed that birth through three intervention that is part C of ID. DEA, um, of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Yeah. And so that program operates in the state of Mississippi. We had a good many, we had a lot of hearing time devoted to that. One of the things that really disturbed us too is we're serving 1,650 kids last year. We know statistically that number should be between 10 and 12,000. Wow. And so why that's so important hmm. is this program is one of the greatest ROIs that you can get on education investment because what it does is it diminishes those children's disability if they have a speech impediment, if they have OT needs, if they have PT needs. Mm -hmm. um, what it does is it really works with those children at a very young age while you literally can remap the brain. And so it pushes those pathways to help them form so they can get better language and all of that. And you greatly, studies have shown that you greatly can diminish diminish the number of children that are going to need special education services when they go into the traditional education setting if you intervene early. Okay. And so the impact for those children is a lifetime impact because you're um, helping them with, um, you know, really communication issues, things that are going to help them in their vocational environment and their home and all of those things. And so it's a really important program. And so we're not doing a good job on this. Um, the statistics came out that we were, we're some of the worst in the country of what we're really doing on this. So what we wanted to do with this is um, we have um, created a kind of a pilot program 
um, that's kind of our proposal to see how we could run a different model of this um, that would be more of a university-based system and um, it's a program you know and it's typical with everything I think I told you earlier is you start having people that are worried about their jobs um, that are worried about things and you start sure. having people call into the legislature I just got a phone call that's saying why are you trying to do away with our jobs nobody's trying to do away with anybody's mm. jobs there's more than enough work in this state for every early intervention provider to work because we need this but they start getting missed messages and it starts getting junk and they start calling in going I can't believe you're trying to take away my child's early intervention no mm. we're trying to make sure you have more children have access to the services that you have and it just I mean but it, you know it's that protectionism of sure. people just saying oh we don't want anything to change look guys we got to get this to change because we're missing a huge opportunity here and a huge opportunity to help these kids because we know that that ROI is high, high when we help these children. So that's the only frustrating process, too, is sometimes um, the, how the word gets out from people that maybe their ulterior motives are not the best because they just want things to remain the same. Is, is this a situation where th there's kind of a point of no return or a point after which th there's diminishing return? Um, not really on this particular age group okay. because we're talking about just birth through three here. Okay. And on this particular age group, you, there's not really diminishing returns here at all because these children, what you can do, and I have had a child that had this intensive early intervention and the achievements he made during that period of time were substantial and well, I, I guess what I'm saying let, let me interrupt okay. you, I'm sorry that after that age if, if they don't receive the treatment and the intervention during those those critical right. years and it's after that age if you've lost some ground there it depends on the disability okay it okay. depends completely on the disability yeah and so um, that's why it's it's for all children though this is an incredibly important time while we can help these sure pathways go and remain so um, we're going to keep fighting this fight because it's a fight worth having um, I've been so pleased to partner with so many people across the state to make sure that we really fight this fight because this is where we really um, as a state can make sure not only that we do the right thing but we're going to add value to these children and their education process and really diminish the services that will have to be offered these children later in life. Yeah and is this a, uh, something uh, Senator that it would be detected by the parents and is there an educational component here where the parents need to be uh, trained, perhaps, or educated to detect it? They are. It, it is. But we also have tremendous practitioners across the state. Okay. We've really improved our outcomes in the state and really having our practitioners in the state, whether they be a pediatrician or a nurse practitioner, really making sure that they're given the proper evaluations as this children child is coming in and make sure. And what the complaints are coming a lot from these practitioners who say, I need to get my kids in these programs and I don't have spaces and I don't have um the things to do that. So this is a this is a truly important bill that really will affect a lot of kids and a lot of families because when you get these kids where they can communicate better, it affects the entire family dynamic. Yeah. So I think this is one that we're going to be fighting to make sure that we can get done in the state. It's okay. a good bill. And that's okay. why we're going to pilot it because we're going to see how we do it and how, we're going to heavily evaluate it and how we can do a better job at programs across the state. Okay. 
so we've, we've got a couple of more bills that we yeah. came from this committee. Uh, one of them is a foster parents bill of rights. We heard from foster parents across the state. We heard from CASA. We heard from um, youth court judges saying we really need to solidify what the rights and responsibilities are of these foster parents because we're losing foster parents because maybe these are not solidified. So we've got a foster parent bill of rights that we're pretty excited about. We've worked with a lot of foster parents on it. We've worked with a lot of court volunteers and um, court people really looking at this bill to make sure that we can tighten up to make sure that these foster parents really have a opportunity to go to these children's educational meetings um, if they have IEPs that they have know about all these kids um, medical needs behavioral needs when they come into their um, home and so our foster parents think that these are things that are just really need to be solidified so we've got that we also um, have um, making sure that we have um, really look at our safe haven laws in the yeah. state which is so important because um, the safe haven laws right now, if a, ch- if a woman decides to um, that she does not want to care for the baby at the hospital, the adoption process was very similar to as CPS came and take over, um, comes in, removes the child from the home. Well, this is somebody who's voluntarily given up those rights, so we need to simplify that process. Yeah. And so we've got a process here where we really simplify it. Um, we give, um, we've increased the time in this. Instead of seven days, they have up to 30 days to be able to voluntarily term, you know, turn over this child and um, to for permanent adoption because our goal is to get these children into permanent placements as quickly as possible. Yeah. And so we've really cleaned up those laws. One of the other bills that we have too that I'm pretty excited about is um, we realized when we did the the Women, Children, and Family Study Committee is that we really just touched the tip of the iceberg when it comes to adoption and foster care. And so we have a study committee and we've given them a list of about 20 things that we want them to tackle and look at. And we're bringing in the experts, um, the people um, across the state who really are invested in this and know about this across the state to advise the legislature on what to do. Okay. We, uh, I want to ask you some questions about uh, just foster care in general, to, to the extent you uh, are aware, uh, when we come back after the break. Okay, we got Thank Senator you. Nicole Akins-Boyd in the Element Well Studios. to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Chicago bumping us into this segment here. It's middays. We're in the Element Wealth Studio visiting with Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd. So, 
just talking about the, the foster uh, children um, system here in the state of Mississippi. And, and Senator, it's, it's one of those that you don't see a lot. You're not aware of it, the average citizen, I would say. It's, it's kind of not in your face. Um, and it, I guess it doesn't get reported a lot in the news. There's not a lot of attention to it. But, but there's some sad situations. There are some sad situations, and um, we have a CPS office that is diligently trying to find those children's homes and placement. And um, we've been in recent communication about with them. On um, we're constantly talking with them, and I'm calling in situations that I hear of and all of yeah. that. And um, we have an extreme need to really for therapeutic homes in the state. Um, there was a situation they were talking to me about earlier that two children with disabilities and really being able to find this therapeutic placements. And so they are um, really, they are being very aggressive, um, trying to fill in those holes, um, looking at different contractors and um, really promoting um, what we can do to really encourage foster families um, to, and to get more foster families. So it is a special person that is a foster parent. And we have so many people across this state who um, want to open up their homes, don't know quite what to do, and then want to know how they support these other foster families. So um, I love to see churches get involved um, because I think it's critical that when somebody does adopt a foster kid that they also then are supporting those families that are really trying to help those kids as well. Yeah, and of course uh, we were talking offline about the social workers. I I suspect we still uh, have a situation where the, the work overwhelms the staff. Just not enough of them. We There's, don't pay them a whole lot. No, and um, increasing the pay and the opportunities for those. Um, our commissioner um, has been um, our CPS commissioner. She has been very diligent about pointing out um, what we need to do to increase that pay for our social workers, and we really do have to continue to do this um, because, I mean, you know, when you're looking at at the job that they have um, and the hours that they are on call. Um, Which is 24 hours, by the way. Exactly. So they have to be really be on call at all points in times. And so we need to make sure that, you know, as you often say, the marketplace demands, the marketplace demands a higher salary here than we're kind of giving them and some of them. And so we need to make sure that we're looking at this pay for those social workers. It's important. And and it's a calling as well, uh, as you well know, because they don't do it for the money they know going into it. They're not going to make a lot of money off of this, but... Getting involved in some very contentious situations, sometimes dangerous situations as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you'll find from our law enforcement no better cheerleader of our social workers because they see firsthand those dangerous situations that those social workers get into. But I will say this they can make a tremendous impact um, with the people across the state. And I see the same goes for our CASA volunteers who are volunteering and making sure they're staying in touch with those children throughout the process. Um, They are doing some terrific work across the state. Yeah. Well, we are grateful for yes. the work. Um, I, I, I shared with you that I have some personal experience with that, and uh, golly, they're they're angels, honestly. Absolutely. So appreciate that you working on that. All right, what else? Uh, Look at some of the other bills that you have uh, filed. You've authored. Yeah. So kind of in that same. Um, genre too is one of the bills that we have is a vulnerable adult registry and so um, we've worked with the attorney general's office we're working with the department of public safety on that too Um, when people are convicted of um, a crime of 
really hurting a vulnerable and it's a vulnerable it's called a vulnerable adult but it's also children coming to play in that many other things is there's no centralized registry so like for example um you know my dad just recently passed away but for a number of years i've had to provide caregivers or anything like that yeah and so as a private citizen there's no really way for me to do a background check to see if someone's ever been convicted of um mistreating um someone um being guilty of a vulnerable adult statute and so um, we as people age and we have a growing elderly population um, we need to have something for the general consumer and for hospitals and people that want to um, really or you know caregiving agencies who want to hire somebody to really look and see if there's been any convictions of that and so this is a simple bill it's a registry um, and so um, the attorney general's office responsible for prosecuting those and then we're trying to work with like CPA uh, Deep, I'm sorry, DPS to see if we can, you know, house the registry there. Yeah. So um, it's kind of a, it's not it's pretty straightforward, um, but it would be a tremendous tool for families to be able to use across the state. Yeah. When you're caring for those. Well, I haven't thought about that, but I guess a lot of these situations uh, may occur and, and uh, may be committed by certain people, and then we end up placing more adults in their care without the knowledge that they had done this in the past. Exactly. So this is something that we can do to really kind of solve and alleviate the situation. And I've also okay. got another really kind of interesting bill, too, um, is that actually, and I will tell you, it came from um, Louisiana. Hmm. Louisiana passed a bill last year um, that requires um, pornography websites if you have more than 33% of your site is a pornography website you have to make sure that you have some ability to do some age verification Okay. And so you think about it. We have age verification. When you go to the movies um, to see an R-rated movie, you have all these different things. Um, if you want to um, purchase cigarettes, if you want to purchase anything. But this, I'm holding up my phone right here, but this phone, every teenager in America has one of these phones. And they have the capacity to get on these pornography websites with no age verification at all. Okay, how are you going to do that? So, um, there, um, Lucy, and I, we're really looking at the Louisiana bill, um, where they do require them to submit their um, their identification. Um, there's also things that make sure that that identification is um, protected um, when they submit to those sites. But I was just literally flabbergasted. Um, at the, I just really had no idea about this when we started looking at this issue. Is the number of visits each month to pornography websites and um, a porno- por- pornographic websites in this country garner more internet traffic than Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Wikipedia combined. Been that way for a long time, and, and the the content uh, that is stored and available uh, via the World Wide Web uh, mostly consists of. Uh, pornographic content. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, right. yeah. So this is just, this is a, again a pretty straightforward bill. Hmm. They'll have to have some age verification on this. And they'll, th- these particular sites will, Louisiana's just went into effect in January. And um, okay. it was a bill that um, passed their legislature with complete bipartisan support. And I think it was unanimous in both chambers there. Okay. So um, that's one of the things that we have. Just another way to try to protect our young kids sure. from, um, because I've had some psychologists reach out to me and have told me that this is a very significant problem. Oh, it's an epidemic. 
Yeah. There's no doubt about it. And it and it's been um, evolving for quite some time because there's just so much more content and it's lucrative for the creators of that content. Yeah. So we're also going back again, we had it last year, it passed the Senate last year, didn't make it through the House. Um, another mm. um, open meetings what I'm calling an open meetings law mm. to put make sure that um, they put those um Anytime any board or commission does a meeting, that you put those on Facebook Live or some way for people to watch it. Um, When my constituency is two and a half hours away, um, and for them to be able to watch a meeting in Jackson, um, it's just efficient. And sure. it's something we started doing during the pandemic, and we need to continue doing this because sunshine is helpful to everybody. Well, I'm surprised most aren't already already doing it. A lot of them are, but a lot of them, um, I think that's probably why it died. Um, a number of them um, didn't want to have to do that. So um, I think they complained. I do know they complained about it greatly last year. Hmm. So we're going to push that bill again, and hopefully Good. we can get some sunshine in simple. there. Yeah, simple, simple, inexpensive. Simple, yeah. inexpensive things that we can no make. No excuse gutter- anymore. Exactly. And yeah. So, um, okay, yeah, that's all good. Uh, well, I've seen some other bills here as well. Uh, how about this Seizures Safe Schools Act? What's uh, that? So, working with um, Representative um, Ford, Jill Ford, and yeah. this bill, and it puts in place too for school districts um, when children have seizures in school. It really puts a process in place. It also makes sure that there is. Um, they, um, the school nurses and anybody that would give the child the seizure medication once a seizure in a, interacts to, yeah. it gives them some protection a little bit on that. But it also makes sure there's a plan in place okay. that everybody knows that that kid has a seizure issue. And this is how you do it. And this is how you respond. It's a pretty straightforward bill. And it makes sure that all parties really communicate with okay. each other on that. That seems so, like a good idea. So are we requiring then the uh, the teachers to be trained? They get a little, the, tra- the teachers will have to get a little bit of training on this. But, um, Quite frankly, it's one of those things that teachers need anyway, because, yeah. um, you know, I remember my daughter being in a eighth grade class and she recognized it because of some training that she had okay. had. Okay. And um, a, the young lady in front of her broke out and it was the first time she'd had, she had a grand mal seizure um, at the school. So, um, you know, teacher didn't know what to do and all of that. Yeah, and just recognizing, knowing how to respond. Exactly. Yeah. So just keeping everybody safe. Makes sense. Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd has been our guest here on Middays. Appreciate you coming in, Senator. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll uh, take a break right here. Coming right back. Stay with us. You're listening to Middays with Gerard, Gerard Gibbert, here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It is midday. Super Talk Mississippi. Appreciate Senator Nicole Boyd coming on. One matter we did not discuss, and I apologize for that, but uh, just talked to her on her way out. We are going to have her back on, and that's this issue of postpartum Medicaid coverage in uh, the state of Mississippi. Uh, It's a complicated matter, as you can imagine. 
and it's uh, it, it's something that is being debated. I believe federal law currently requires 60 days postpartum care under Medicaid for pregnant women who've just delivered, who qualify based on having an income ranging from 138% of the federal level, uh, poverty level, uh, that or below. Some states, however, have increased the threshold up to 380%. Most states, in fact, go beyond the minimum federal threshold. Uh, but So 60 days. And what this would do was extend it for 12 months, the proposal in the state legislature, for a year. And I would just say again to, to folks that this whole idea of Medicaid, which is an entrenched federal program, been around since 1965. There are 91 million Americans presently covered by Medicaid, about 40 percent of those are children that are in households that meet the um, income threshold for eligibility to be covered in the program. Uh, and often in those households, because in this state we did not expand Medicaid, the children would qualify under base Medicaid, but their able-bodied adult parent or parents would not. That's what expansion would do, is it would cover and extend coverage to able-bodied adults. Presently, there is no coverage in Mississippi under Medicaid for able-bodied adults unless their income is something like 45% of the federal poverty level, which is like way down there, $7,000 a year, something to that effect. Um, but that's what Medicaid expansion is all about, is extending coverage to able-bodied adults. That's a coverage group that's presently not covered. So this postpartum care would be extended to women who meet the uh, who have just delivered, who meet the eligibility threshold, and it would extend it out from the federal minimum requirement of 60 days to 12 months. So the question on on these huge issues like Medicaid expansion, I, I don't know if I'd call them huge as much as I would, just contentious, strong views on both sides, is it just seems to me like we're lacking data from both sides to really add some girth to some substance to their arguments. So with respect to the extension of postpartum benefits, I think it would be useful and honestly it should be a requirement before we even debate this to get all the data. How, how many cases are we talking about? By not extending this coverage, what sort of bad health outcomes are occurring uh, during this postpartum period? To uh, So the baby's covered. It's the mother. What, what is that? And then is that preventable? I, I keep going back to this lady that we had on the program, Miss Getty Israel, that runs the Sisters in Birth organization. That's what, Rhino? Three miles from where we're sitting right here. And, and she explained, and it certainly made sense to me, that a lot of the complications 
that occur during pregnancy and then even at delivery and postpartum are avoidable with the mother before and during pregnancy would just adopt some better health habits. And she maintains that she uh, can provide a, a list, if you will, a, a plan that is um, evidence-based, as she describes it, that shows, yeah, if you just simply make these, these changes in your life, and she pointed to obesity as being the number one risk, as I recall, number one risk factor that, w that results in a problematic pregnancy and even a, a complicated delivery. And I remember her sitting in this chair right here, Rhino, you heard her and said, you know, if they don't do this, they get kicked off Medicaid. You remember her saying that? And, I, and you remember the text we got on that as well, people saying, I like what this lady's saying. And so, sure does make sense to me that we get her in front of our legislature, maybe she's got something. At a minimum, it's, it's worth, it, it warrants hearing her out. Sounds like she's been dealing with this. It's pretty clear she's dealing with lots of pregnant women that are having problems during pregnancy. And, and you can sense the frustration in her voice when she encounters these, uh, these pregnant women. And it's like, what do you mean you're drinking and you're eating like crazy and you're smoking and you're doing everything else that just, just complicates the fact that you've got another human in your belly there? That's already putting a strain on your body. I don't know secret there. And so it sounded to me like that's a plan we ought to take some interest in, see what she has to say, and how maybe that could be a preventative to problematic uh, deliveries and, and, more importantly, to prevent uh, complications during the postpartum period. Made sense to me. But any conversation revolving around obesity faces a strong headwind from the federal government because now the person in charge of childhood nutrition guidelines at the FDA is a firm proponent of obesity does not have anything to do with diet. It's all genetics. Yeah. And, and by the way, the pursuit of, of uh, thinness, I think, is the word used. That, that is white supremacy. You've seen that as well, right? So now they're shaming people for trying to keep their bodies in, you know, a particular shape. So the federal government thinks that thinness is white supremacy, that obesity doesn't have anything to do with calories, and that frosted <laughs> mini-wheats are healthier than poached eggs. Maybe we shouldn't listen to the feds. Maybe the feds are all idiots. <laughs> and what did you tell us about yesterday about bringing cake into the office, right? So. Oh, yeah, there's been a study put out now that says that if you bring cake to the office, it's just as dangerous as secondhand smoke around your fellow co-workers, which tells me the secondhand smoke pseudoscience was a bunch of garbage. If cake is just as dangerous as it, then neither one of them are all that dangerous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it did certainly call all of that into question, but it's, it all goes back to the original assertion we made, which is we can't agree on how many genders there are. Now we can't agree <laughs> on what, what constitutes good and bad health practices. Maybe that's why we have problems. And so, but what always is the recommended solution? Money. 
And that, you know, and that's really not what Miss Israel was requesting. I do recall her saying, yeah, we'd like to see insurance carriers, private and public, such as Medicaid, recognize that her treatment has value and should be covered. Because the problem is somebody's got to get paid for that counseling, those treatment, those services, of course. How do we pay for that? And, and a lot of these women don't have the money personally to do so. Now, on the other hand, you know what? If you can't afford to be pregnant and have a child, well, then don't have one. And don't tell me that, okay, well, I just get an abortion if that happens. Because that is how, what they rely on. You, gosh, you've heard that been the case from the pro-choice proponents. Well, this may interfere with their lifestyle and their livelihoods. And Well, okay, well, then don't get pregnant. The baby's not the scapegoat for your poor decision-making here and improper planning. That's what you're, that's what, uh, you're relying on to make your case, and, and, and you're arguing your case on that basis. So I'd like to see, for Medicaid proponents, I said this the other day, the hospitals ought to provide us with some reasonable and reliable accurate pro formas. Get, get your accounting people to help with that. Get your auditors to help with that. Show us a before and after to make the case for expansion if you believe that that is something that would um, you would benefit from dramatically from a financial perspective. We need to see some data to make that case, not just talk about it at the high level, abstract. Well, people aren't getting this, and we'd be jobs that, and money this, and this, that, and the other. Well, no. We need something that's got uh, again, uh, a little bit more detail and specificity in it. That's what we do in business. It ought, ought to apply here. Coming right back with a final segment on Midday. Stay with us. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone, that's the great Eric Clapton. He can play a little guitar, you know. So, back in the Element Wealth Studios, uh, Paula Meridian says, for us people that are usually driving down the road, instead of such and such percentage of the federal poverty level, could you do the math, please? Yeah, the 2023 uh, level the federal government, by the way, has recently updated that. So it depends on the number of persons in the household. So, for example, with one person in the household, the poverty, the uh, federal poverty guideline level is fourteen thousand. It's recently been updated, by the way, fourteen thousand five hundred and eighty dollars. Medicaid expansion at the federal level, or based on federal guidelines 
would cover able-bodied adults whose income, uh, household income, is below 138 percent of the federal poverty level. That computes out to be $20,120. If it's, uh, let's say, a typical family of four, then that, uh, by the way, the federal poverty level at 100% is $30,000. So 138% is $41,400. Just to kind of, but I understand, Paul, sorry about that, <laughs> going through the percentages. But I'm so accustomed to just following the, uh, the Obamacare subsidy guidelines because those subsidies are are based on the household income where the premium that the subscriber, the person enrolling in or family enrolling in Obamacare would pay is computed as a percentage of their household actual household income. So for example, if your income is uh, and this is what we've talked about so much on the program, if your income is below the household's income below 150% of the federal poverty level, they would qualify for subsidies where their premiums are 0% of their income. So at 150%, they could make $21,870 up to that amount, an individual, a family of one in this case, and they would qualify for subsidies in the exchanges where their premiums would be zero. That was a that was uh, something that was established in the American Rescue Plan, and then enacted into permanent law, which by the way had an expiration date on it of a year. Enacted into permanent law in the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, and this is an option in my view to standard Medicaid. In fact. You could argue it's even better. It's uh, more beneficial to a subscriber because more would qualify for it. 150% of the federal poverty level as opposed to 138%, which is what Medicaid is. In both cases, their premiums are zero cost. We should be encouraging and promoting this. It just doesn't seem to be that widely known, and it did kind of happen under the radar. I'll grant that. When the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, you heard more about the green subsidies, right? That was, that was the focus. Go buy you an EV, some solar panels, and electric appliances, et cetera, and get money for the government for such purchases. But you didn't hear a lot about these health care provisions, and they're significant, significant. And we, we should be encouraging people. That costs the state nothing. I mean, that program's law. It's in place. It's available. Done deal right now. Thomas and Greenwood, when they expand Medicaid, can I drop my private insurance and blow the money I save like all the working poor whose insurance I'll be subsidizing? I could make the same argument, of course, Thomas, for your Social Security. I assume you're going to apply for that when you're eligible to do so because those at the higher end of the income spectrum are paying for the retirement benefits of everybody else and their Medicare, by the way. Something else I didn't get to today that we will tomorrow is this whole debt ceiling debate because the Democrats are fear-mongering that the Republicans want to take away your Social Security and Medicare 
And that's totally false. That What they're looking for is a way to salvage those programs and put them on better economic footing going forward. But it is effective. And unfortunately, that, that fear-mongering talking point is very effective because so it's okay for Bernie Sanders to mention it, but it's not okay for a Republican to mention it? That's right. And Bernie Sanders seeks to, of course, lift the threshold on Social Security contribution, which is presently $160,000. But even though he's doing that, and the people that make more than that are going to pay more in, they don't get any more out. That's just classic redistribution is all it is. We're out of time here today. We thank you so much for joining us, as always, back in the studios again tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.